Seen from one angle, there is his face. I look again and there's the mountain, rising, snow-covered against a cloudless sky. I stare at the picture he's drawn, watching the image shift from one form to the next. Don't go, I say in a whisper. But it is too late. The front door slams behind him, and I hear the jeep's engine rev as he peels out of the driveway. We fight about the Mount McKinley trip for two months, a record. I argue with him, I yell, I plead. At night I wake from dreams where Aiden goes tumbling off the mountain, crashing to the bottom of a valley and landing, lifeless, in a heap. I dream that he is crushed by falling rock, that his Cessna goes down before he even reaches the glacier, that he steps on a weak snow bridge and goes hurtling into the depths of a crevasse. Then I wake up, my heart pounding in triple time, and look over at Aiden sleeping beside me, peaceful and still. Don't go, I say into the darkness of our room. Don't leave me. Where this premonition of disaster has come from, I can't say, but it sticks. Aiden tries everything he can think of to make me change my mind, to see sense, as he puts it. He listens to all of my doomsday scenarios and then one by one tells me why they're nothing to worry about. He teases me that we've changed places, that usually he's the irrational one and I'm the one calming him down. He makes jokes. Denali? Donata, baby. He makes JC come and talk to me. He gives me books about successful ascents of the mountain, emails me websites. When none of this does any good... He screams and threatens and throws things. He begs. And finally he retreats into a stony, stubborn silence, from which he emerges only to say, I'm going, and that's the end of it. The night before he leaves in May, I lie in bed waiting for him to join me, and when he doesn't, I get up to look for him. He's sitting in the living room in the dark. I can make out the dim shape of a glass on the coffee table in front of him, next to his lighter and a pack of American spirits. He smells like whiskey. I sit down on the couch next to him. Hey. Maddie, he says, and his voice is rough. He is crying, I realize, with some horror. What's happening to us? He says. His voice breaks on the last word. I move closer, wrap my arms around him. He is shaking, like he was six years ago when he came to tell me that he loved me, that Jim Ellis had died on the Eiger Nordwand, and he blamed himself. I can't lose you, he says. I can't. I don't know what I would do. Tell me I'm not losing you, baby. Please. Now I am crying, too. My tears mingle with his as we hold each other. You could never lose me, I say. I'm the one who's going to lose you. I know it, Aiden. I know I am. He presses his face against mine. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be back, honey. You'll see. I'll be back and everything will be fine. You can't know that. Look at what happened to Jim. To Alice, he says, sounding puzzled. What's McKinley got to do with that? The Nordvon was a freaky set of circumstances, a whole bunch of bad stuff piling up at once. Ellis was sick, that cornice was shit, and then J.C. got knocked out. You know all this. 
I don't know why I've got the Iger expedition on my mind. Maybe it's the feel of Aiden's body trembling, the wetness of his tears. I don't think I've seen him cry since that day, not even when Gabriel was born, and it unsettles me. All three of you could have died in the crevasse, on that stupid mountain, not just him, I say and shiver. But we didn't, he says, pulling away and wiping his eyes. I hear the familiar stubbornness line his voice. I lost Alice, true. I haven't forgiven myself for that, but I did the best I could. I built an anchor, I got us out of there, and I came back to you. He runs his hand through his hair. It was a horrible thing, Maddie. But it also made me realize how I feel about you. After that stupidity with Kate. Those extremes. They're part of why I...